Flash Outside the Off Stump. Episode 15. A Chip Off the Old Block. Following the tragic shooting accident in which he had lost an eye, Ranjit Singh's cricketing glory days were truly behind him. By the time the Great War ended and first-class cricket resumed, middle age was catching up with him. Having said this, by the end of hostilities, England was in dire need of players of his calibre. 289 county players had been killed in the war. Additionally, a generation of younger players who would normally have graduated to the first-class game via the public schools and universities during this period had instead found themselves commissioned into the armed forces. The effect on English cricket was devastating. In the first post-war test series, the Australians chalked up a 5-0 whitewash, and it would be 1926 before England regained the Ashes. That the English game was in a parlous state had already been evident in 1919, when a touring side representing the Australian Imperial Forces, then stationed in Europe, toured England and swept many of the counties before them. Perhaps it was this, or just a nostalgic wish to recapture old times, that persuaded Ranji to return to Sussex for the 1920 season. But it was to be a short-lived and unhappy revival. Now aged 47 and rather portly, he neither had the speed nor flexibility he once displayed. Furthermore, the added disability of his single eye made judging the movement of the ball extremely difficult. Nevertheless, he was undoubtedly still able to draw big crowds and remained popular with public and press alike. The Globe, Saturday the 3rd, July 1920. Ranji at the Nets. People at Lord's yesterday had the pleasure of seeing the genial Maharaja of Noanaga, better known over here as Ranji, at the Nets. Though on the stout side now, he shows all his old grace bringing off his famous leg glide. Evidently buoyed up by his enthusiastic reception at the Nets, Ranji joined Sussex for their away match against Essex at the end of July. The excitement was not just among the crowd, as Sussex teammate Arthur Gilligan later recalled. What a thrill went through us all. The news spread like wildfire and the Jam Sahib's reappearance was the cause of a huge gate at Leighton. Press photographers came in their scores. Reporters surged like flies trying to get a good story. In fact, this was the greatest happening since the signing of the armistice. Leeds Mercury Thursday the 12th of August 1920. Ranji's return. The Jam Sahib was not in long, barely half an hour. He did not gain double figures, yet on his retirement his greeting rivalled that of a century maker, a reception distinguished by the warmth of its appreciation, not merely for his effort but for the return of a talented player whose career to all intents and purposes had been written off. A southern expression of regret at what was termed his pathetic efforts at a comeback, occasioned by Ranji's unexpected participation in Sussex's game with Essex at Leighton last week, 
procurement which had been given with publicity had falsely advertised Kanji's waning power. True enough, he is not so supple nor fleet of foot as when he assisted J.T. Hearn accomplish the hat-trick in the Australian Test match at Headingley 21 years ago, but still wields the willow with the ease and command of a master. The crowd laughs. The first ball Ranchi received he glided between his legs for a single, an unorthodox method of treating the Yorkshire amateurs' difficult deliveries, which hugely delighted the crowd. His sum total was nine, composed of seven singles and a two, being out to his first misjudged stroke, a hard return to Wilson, which he obviously intended to drive over the bowler's head. Ranji is past his winning days, perhaps, but practice will prove he's still a batsman. This is his second match this season. He is at loggerheads with the English climate, but he hopes to play in three more games, including the return against Yorkshire in Brighton, the week after next. Whether Ranji's intriguing shot through his own legs was deliberate or accidental is impossible to judge, but he never did get to play in that return match. Sadly for Ranji, his next game was to be his last. Although a home match for Sussex, it was at Hastings, where he only scored a single run against Northamptonshire before having to retire hurt with a badly damaged elbow. The injury required an operation, which he typically underwent without anaesthetic, and dashed any hopes of playing again. All told, in his last three matches he batted just four times. His 16 against Essex was followed by a 9 and 13 against Yorkshire, and that single in his final game. It was a disappointing end to an illustrious career, but it was far from the end of his family's involvement in cricket. Although he never married and had no children of his own, he had taken great care to ensure that his nephews received a similar education and upbringing to himself. Ranji knew that one of them would most likely one day be his successor as Jam Sahib, and was keen that they should be prepared for the role. This meant having an education that would enable them to hold their own with the British administrators they would have to deal with in India. Holding their own, not just politically, but socially and in Ranji's eyes this meant having all the attributes of an English gentleman. Not only did they require a classical education, they had to be able to shoot and play cricket. He wouldn't have been disappointed. Eventually, no fewer than five of his nephews were to play first-class cricket, mostly in India in the 1940s. By that time, Ranji himself had passed away, dying of heart failure at the comparatively young age of 60 in 1933. His final years had been largely taken up with politics. He came into conflict both with the Indian National Congress and the British about their vision for India's future as it began to edge towards independence. But he also served as India's representative to the League of Nations, where his secretary was his old friend Charles Fry. Fortunately, Ranji was still alive to witness the cricketing exploits of his most successful protégé, his nephew, Duleep Sinji, who was to follow in his footsteps by also playing for Cambridge University, Sussex and England. He was born in 1905 and, like his uncle, received his initial education at Raj Kumar College, where he was coached from the age of eight. At 16, he moved to England, continuing his education at Cheltenham College, where he lodged with, and no doubt picked up some very good tips from, the aforementioned C.B. Fry. 
With his uncle's connections, Dooleep Sinji's path into top-class cricket was somewhat easier than Ranji's. He knew all the right people, and more importantly did not face the same struggle to be taken seriously merely because of the colour of his skin. If anything, it was the opposite. Whereas Ranji had initially been seen as an upstart, Dooleep Sinji was assumed to have a cricketing pedigree. But while his family connections certainly did him no harm, there is no doubt that Dooleep Sinji was possessed of an incredible talent as a batsman, probably surpassing that of his illustrious uncle. Even as a schoolboy, he had been marked for greatness. Harry Altham, the Surrey and Hampshire player who would later become a noted cricket historian and president of the MCC, waxed lyrical about his exploits for Cheltenham College in Wisden. In natural gifts, virus and footwork, he is certainly blessed far above the ordinary measure. There is no doubt about the judgment and certainty with which he takes toll of straight balls of anything but the most immaculate length. His late cutting is quite beautiful, and there's a certain ease and maturity about all his batting methods that stamps him as of a different class from the ordinary school batsman. Arriving at Clare College, Cambridge, he went straight into the university first eleven while still a freshman. At the same time, he registered his home address as Eastbourne, so that he would qualify to play for Sussex as well. He opened his first-class career with some very impressive innings. In 1926, he scored 75 for Cambridge against Oxford in the early part of the season, before joining Sussex for the latter part, scoring 97 at Leicester and 115 in Brighton against Hampshire. The following season, his form was even better. Playing for Cambridge, he scored 101 against Yorkshire and a truly remarkable 254 not out against Middlesex. Still a university record today. Unfortunately, a few days after this remarkable feat, he suffered a severe attack of pneumonia. Ranji sent him off to Switzerland to recuperate and he did not play any more cricket until 1928. At the time, this downturn in Dooleep's health may have raised a few eyebrows, but many remembered that Ranji too had suffered severe chest problems during his early career. It was widely assumed that he was just having difficulty adjusting to the comparative cold and damp of English summers. As things turned out, it was merely a harbinger of worse to come. Health issues aside, it also became apparent quite early on that there was a degree of friction in the relationship between uncle and nephew. Ranji was a hard taskmaster. He bombarded Dooley with advice, particularly the need to be super self-critical in order to improve. He would telegram both Dooley and the Sussex captain in the event of any dips in form, and on one occasion scolded Dooley for only scoring 93. Ranji may have acted with the best motives, only wanting to push Dulip to achieve his full potential, while at the same time trying to keep his head on the ground. But his intervention was having a negative effect. Dulip told some of his friends that he only really played cricket at all to please Ranji, and whenever he knew he was in the crowd it made him nervous, to the detriment of his performance. Nevertheless, his natural ability and prolific scoring resulted in his selection for England for the first test against South Africa in 1929. 
Lord Harris, who had objected to Ranji's selection for England over 30 years previously, raised objections again on much the same grounds, that Dulip Sinji wasn't a proper Englishman. Evidently, the press didn't agree. Sheffield Independent, Wednesday 12th of June 1929. The really interesting feature in the selection is the entry of Dulip Sinji into international cricket. Dulip Sinji, or Tulip as the Sussex crowd loves to call him, is Indian, but his selection is very unlikely to meet with the storm of criticism that fell upon England's selectors when his famous uncle Ranjit Sinji was first picked for England. Dulip Sinji, from a cricket standpoint, is English. He was coached when young by English professionals. He shaped his batting style with Cambridge University, perfected it under the eye of Albert Ralph, and really blossomed to his present ripeness of batsmanship with Essex. So the most insular cricket enthusiast cannot object to his representing England. As it happened, Julep had a fairly quiet game, only batting in the first innings and being dismissed for 12. He then bowled a solitary over, taking no wickets and conceding seven runs in the second innings. His disappointing test form may have got him dropped anyway, although he continued to score freely in domestic matches. Playing for Sussex against Kent, he scored 115 in the first innings and 246 in the second. As if these figures aren't already impressive enough, the speed with which he achieved them is worthy of note. The 115 took 105 minutes. The 246 came in two stints, 149 in 125 minutes in the evening and then 97 in 70 minutes the following morning. His 246 included six sixes and 45 fours. But it seems that the South Africans raised objections to his presence in the England side, and the test selectors duly caved into their demands. The exact source of these objections remains a little murky. It was assumed initially that the objections came from the South African team, but this was strongly denied by their captain, Nummy Dean, who personally wrote to Dooley reassuring him that he was happy to play with him. Suspicion then fell on direct interference from the South African government. The following season, the touring Australians had no such objections, and Julep's form saw him back in the England lineup. In truth, he had already been with the MCC on tour to New Zealand over the winter of 1929-30. After a sluggish start in some warm-up games against Australian state sides, he found a rich vein of form on reaching New Zealand, and had averaged 89.5 across the four test matches there. He continued his run of good form on his return to England. In his second innings of the season, he scored 333 against Northamptonshire at Hove. He made his debut against the Australians at Lords at the end of June 1930, and for once the knowledge that Ranji was in the stands didn't unnerve him. To the delight of his proud uncle, he racked up an impressive 173 in an innings lasting nearly five hours, although Ranji couldn't resist remarking to those around him that the boy was always careless when Julie was finally caught at long off while trying to squeeze as many runs as possible from the last few overs of the day. He scored a further 48 in the second innings, 
but England still lost the match, thanks in no small measure to Don Bradman's 254 for the Australians. Despite his earlier barbed remark on Julep's dismissal, Ranji enthusiastically told the newspapers that he was the proudest man in England. What followed was a golden summer. Ranji watched many of Julep's innings in a season when he notched up 2,562 runs in total. It seemed that all was set fair for a triumphant future. (coughs) But at the end of the summer, Dooleep again fell ill with lung problems. He spent the winter of 1930 in Switzerland and the south of France, and felt sufficiently recovered to accept the captaincy of Sussex for the 1931 season. He was still unaware at this point that he was suffering from tuberculosis. Nineteen thirty one proved even more successful than nineteen thirty. Dooleep topped his previous season's total, making two thousand six hundred and eighty four, including numerous centuries for Sussex as well as one for England in the Test series against New Zealand. It was a successful season as a captain too, which saw him guide Sussex to a creditable fourth place in the county championship. At the end of the 1931 season, Dooleep accompanied Ranji back to India. He was going to visit family and to play some cricket, but he also had another reason to go. India were on the verge of becoming a test-playing nation, and Dooleep had been invited to join the Indian Selection Committee. It is a curious thing that a current England player, somebody who in all likelihood would be lining up against the Indians at Lords the following summer, should be instrumental in selecting his own opponents. But it's important to remember that cricket in the 1930s was still bound by notions of honour and gentlemanly conduct that were felt to negate the possibility of any conflict of interest. We only have to look back at the early roles played by England players John Gregg and Plum Warner in developing and encouraging Indian and West Indies cricket respectively to see this. While he was in India, Dooleep visited Delhi, where he turned out for the Viceroy's eleven against the Roshanara Club. He scored 173 in the second innings, spending some of his time at the wicket with another Indian prince, the Nawab of Patodi, who scored 91. Five years younger than Dooleep, the Nawab was a Muslim prince, Iftikhar Ali Khan, who was currently playing for Oxford University and would go on to play for Worcestershire in England. Like Dooleep and Ranji before him, he would score test centuries for England, but have a career cut short by the twin pressures of ill health and royal responsibility. His England career was partly curtailed by his very public spats with England captain Douglas Jardine on the controversial Bodyline tour. After scoring 102 in the first test, he fell out with Jardine by refusing to field on the leg side, as he thought Bodyline bowling to be ungentlemanly. Jardine responded by branding him a conscientious objector and refusing to select him for the rest of the tour. The Nawab's response, when asked by journalists what he thought of Jardine's captaincy, was I am told he has his good points. In three months I have yet to see them. The young Nawab was actually offered the captaincy of the touring 1932 Indian test side that Dooley was visiting to help select, but he asked not to be considered for the role. 
Following his England test appearances, he was actually appointed India captain for the 1936 tour of England, but had to withdraw as he was going through a period of ill health. The Second World War then intervened, and it was in 1946 that he finally captained India on a tour to England, thus achieving the distinction of playing at test level for two different countries. Sadly, the Nawab's captaincy of the 1946 tour was not particularly successful. He batted well against county sides, averaging over 46 on the tour, but came unstuck against England in the tests, only managing a total of 55 runs in five innings. Overall, India did quite well, winning 11, drawing 14 and only losing four matches. They did lose the test series, but only 1-0, and even this could be put down to the devastating form of England bowler Alec Bedser, rather than Iftikhar Ali Khan's leadership. Nonetheless, he faced a barrage of criticism from a disappointed Indian public. He never played for India again. He was sufficiently recovered in the public's eye to be named Indian Cricketer of the Year in 1946-7, and perhaps may have anticipated a return to the international stage had circumstances allowed. However, 1947 brought Indian independence, and the horrors of partition threw the country into turmoil. Not surprisingly, as an Indian princely ruler, particularly as a Muslim prince whose realm was firmly within India rather than Pakistan, his attention was drawn away from the cricket field. By the beginning of 1952, things were settling down, and the Nawab was able to turn to sport again. He had even signed up to return to Worcestershire for the summer, hoping, no doubt, to relive the happy pre-war days of his youth. Sadly, it was not to be. On the 5th of January, he was playing polo in New Delhi when he suffered a heart attack and died. He was only 41. In 2007, the MCC commissioned a trophy in his honour, marking the 75th anniversary of India's Test debut which is now played for in each England v India test series. The Nawab had died on his son's 11th birthday. The son, Mansur Ali Khan Pataldi, was also to become a fine cricketer. He was sent to Winchester College for his secondary education, where he became captain of the school cricket team and smashed the college record for the number of runs scored in a season. Ironically, the previous record holder had been his father's old nemesis, Douglas Jardine, who had also come to Winchester from India as a boy. By this time, he had already made his debut in first-class cricket, aged only 16. He followed in Ranji and Dooleep's footsteps by playing for Sussex, captaining the county in 1966. By now, he was already captaining India. He had made his test debut in December 1961 and became captain of the Indian side in March 1962, at the precocious age of just 21 years and 77 days. His achievement was all the more remarkable because he had been involved in a car accident in Hove the previous July, in which a shard of windscreen glass had penetrated his right eye. It was yet another remarkable parallel with the career of Ranjit Singhji, recalling his horrific shooting accident 45 years earlier. 
Unlike Ranji, however, medical help was immediately on hand, and his eye was saved, although he was left with double vision. A disability that through remarkable perseverance in the nets he learned to conquer. All in all, he was to appear in 46 test matches, in a career that would last until 1975. But what of Dulip Sinji? What happened to him after that 173 for the Viceroy's eleven in the winter of 1931? He returned to Sussex for the 1932 season, determined to lead the club to the county championship. Both Dulip and the club were in good form early in the season. Sussex did not lose a match until late August, and then only to the eventual champions Yorkshire, who were to narrowly pip them to the title. Dooleep's good form in the first half of the season, combined with above-average performances from several other Sussex stalwarts, had seen them at the top of the championship table by early August. At this point, Dooleep received word that he'd been selected for the upcoming Winter Ashes tour. Everything about the future looked rosy. But then the bad luck which always seemed to dog the house of Nawanagar struck again. Sussex were hit by a string of injuries to key players and Dooleep was hit by a recurrence of his TB. Anxious to keep Sussex in contention for the title, he played on although his form understandably nosedived. He scored just 35 runs in his next 11 innings. His doctors urgently advised him to stop playing for the sake of his health. Meanwhile, Ranji, who was himself recuperating from illness in the south of France, telegraphed him and urged him to see the season out. Unfortunately, Ranji was unaware of just how serious Dooleep's illness was. His telegram was meant to cheer up and encourage Dooleep, but had also included the line, Think more of the interest of the side than of your reputation. It spoke to Dooleep's sense of duty and drove him to keep playing whatever the personal cost. Remarkably, he managed to push himself through another two matches, even finding a return to form. He scored 83 against Glamorgan at Swansea, followed by 90 against Somerset at Taunton. How he got through this last innings is something of a mystery, as he was internally hemorrhaging. As he left the field, he collapsed. He was never to play again. England sailed for Australia to win the infamous Bodyline series without him. It was the series in which the young Nawaba Patordi scored his maiden test century before his falling out with Jardine. It is interesting to note how close England came to having two great Indian batsmen in the side at once. Dooleep, meanwhile, spent his winter in Switzerland instead of Australia. This time the mountain air alone was not enough to restore him to health. In the spring he resigned the Sussex captaincy, expressing the belief that his return to cricket would be delayed by at least five years. He underwent a series of operations over the summer, convalesced in Cornwall 
and then, in December 1934, returned to India for good. Ranji had died the previous year. His lifestyle and genetics may have predisposed him to heart failure, but many people at the time believed that his premature death had been brought on by unhappiness and stress. In political circles, much was made of a rebuff that he had received from the Viceroy, Lord Willingdon, while presenting a report on the Federation of India from the Chamber of Princes. Some in nationalist circles characterised Ranji's death as being the result of bullying by Willingdon, but this ignored two key points. Firstly, Ranji was passionately opposed to Indian independence. Secondly, despite disagreements on policy, Willingdon and Ranji were friends and colleagues of 40 years standing, both men having been former Sussex cricketers. Those who were closer to Ranji were inclined to believe that he blamed himself for pushing Dooleep too hard. At the time Ranji died, Dooleep's life was still hanging very much in the balance, and Ranji was living with the idea that he had caused the premature death of his beloved nephew. Had he lived a few months more, he would have discovered that he was mistaken. Although never fit enough to play top-level cricket again, Dooleep did recover. He eventually died at a relatively young age of 54 in 1959, but was able to marry and enjoy a successful career in public service, including three years as Indian High Commissioner to Australia and several years as the Chairman of the All India Council of Sports. The age of the princes had passed. India was now a republic. In England, the last few gentlemen amateurs were disappearing from the county scene and cricket was on the road to becoming a fully professional sport. In truth, it had long been so. The great amateur gentlemen W.G. Grace and Ranji among them had in reality always played for handsome expenses, often far in excess of anything mere professionals could hope to earn. Cricket was also changing, in that it was becoming more international. Now that an Indian test side was established, the need for Indian players to come to England in order to play test cricket was negated. This did not mean that players of Indian origin were excluded from representing England, but it did perhaps signal a shift in the identity of individual players. When Raman Savaro was selected for England in the 1950s, it was as somebody who had been born and brought up in London. Similarly, when Basil D'Oliveira joined the England team of the 1960s, he was selected on the basis that Britain was now his permanent home, after he had been driven out of South Africa by apartheid. When Ranji Dooleep and the Nawab of Patodi had come to England, the numbers of long-term Indian residents was tiny. Through much of the 19th century, the population was in the low thousands, largely comprised of Laskars, Indian sailors who lived in port towns. Although the Laska community was long established, it didn't really grow over time. By the nature of their employment, Laskars arrived in Britain as single men. After a number of years, they would either return home or settle down with local women, in which case their children became assimilated into the wider population. As late as 1932, the Indian National Congress estimated that there were no more than 7,128 Indians living in the UK. 
It was the breakup of empire that paradoxically led to the mass influx of South Asian people into the UK. The turmoil of partition, combined with the need for labour to rebuild Britain after the Second World War, provided the first stimulus. The persecution of Indians living in newly independent East African states provided a second. Today, there are over three million people of Asian descent in Britain. Given the size of this community and their passion for cricket, it is perhaps surprising that more have not made it into the England team. However, starting with Nasser Hussein, Mark Ramprakash and Ronnie Irani in the 1990s, a steady stream of players with South Asian origins have started to break through. At the time of writing, a total of 683 men have played Test Match Cricket for England. So far, just 23 with South Asian roots are included in that number. But if we look at Test debuts over the last 12 years, we can see definite signs of an upward trend. 11 out of a total of 55 Test debutants. It's a statistic that stands as a fitting tribute to Ranji Duleep Singhji and the intrepid Parsi tourists who originally paved their way back in the 1880s. Thank you.